Hi, I'm Yasmin Suleiman, and I'm the Creative Bridge Program Lead at Codebase. You're listening to the very first episode of the new Creative Bridge podcast. Creative Bridge is a 10-week program for creatives to learn about startup thinking and digital product development. In this series, we chat to some of our amazing alumni to find out more about their creative journeys. In this first episode, I chat to Jennifer Crichton, journalist and founder of The Flock, a new online magazine for smart, ethically-minded women. You can check out The Flock at flockmag.com. In the meantime, here's Jen to tell us her story. Hi, Jen. How are you today? Hello. I'm good, thank you. How are you? Good. Yeah, very good. Looking forward to Christmas. Well, thank you so much um, for for being with us today. I'm super excited to chat to you. We've obviously been talking for quite a while about about your business and it's been on such a journey. Um, I wonder if maybe a good place to start is telling us a bit about your your background and the kind of pathway to to starting the flock, because I know you um, you only moved back to Edinburgh fairly recently um, and a lot has happened since then. Tell us about about your journey. Yeah, I I did. I moved back to, well, North Berwick, just outside Edinburgh. Um, I moved back in early 2018. Uh, before that, I'd been living and working in Dubai for seven and a half years. Um, and prior to that, I was working in, in Edinburgh in the media. So I've been a journalist for 18 years, studied journalism at Napier, went straight into working in the industry and started in local newspapers and then moved into broadcasting and I worked across a few different commercial radio stations and at STV on the web team and then I moved to Dubai um, and when I got to Dubai I started out working in radio and then realised quite quickly that news is not the most satisfying area of work in the Middle East where you were very often being told what was to lead your bulletin and it often wasn't what we would necessarily refer to as impartial news. And so I kind of segued, I guess, into magazines. And my first magazine job was on Hello Middle East, which is a subsidiary, I guess, of of Hello, the international brand. And I worked freelance on that for about six months. And then the editor from that moved to the biggest publishing house in the area to head up their best-selling women's magazine. And she took me with her as her features editor. And then I rose to deputy editor. And then I had my little boy and kind of had to leave, I guess, because in the Middle East, you get 45 days maternity pay. Um, and it includes weekends, it's 45 calendar days. And my little boy was actually in, in hospital until he was over a month old. So I kind of lost my job while in hospital and went, oh, that's not ideal. So I freelanced for a little while, just kind of writing at home with a newborn and then got a job as a business news anchor um, on radio and went back into radio. And eventually, once my, my son was two, kind of went back into magazines. And from there, it all just kind of moved very quickly. And I, I rose to editor of a magazine that was primarily focused on creative industries, charities, um, the sort of more homegrown underground scene in Dubai, which was lovely because I think people haven't, an idea of it as being this very glitzy 
gold chandeliers and champagne kind of place and it can be if you want it to be but there's actually a really interesting creative and arts scene over there it's got a really thriving startup community so that was the area I was working in and I absolutely loved it and so I was in there for a few years and then when it came time for my little boy to start school it seemed like a good time to move home and I came back to Scotland and was kind of dismayed to be honest to see how the media industry had gone, um, falling readerships, kind of a lot of what I had held up as being real quality publications when I left seemed to have um, gone downhill somewhat. And so I kind of carried on freelancing, did a lot of work for Dubai and was doing really well, had lots of really lovely work. And then March this year arrived and it all went very horribly wrong and I kind of lost a year's worth of work overnight and I just sort of thought I could sit and mope and worry about the fact that I didn't have work or I could try and maybe see if I could answer some of the things that were bothering me about the media myself while I had the the time to do it and I guess that's really where the flock came from. Wow um I think, yeah, that's super interesting, especially the stuff, I, I totally agree with you, people have this image of Dubai as being this like glitzy place that you go to for shopping and stuff, and um, that there are, you know, there are other really interesting things happening there if you can, if you can find it. Um, what do you think the difference was then with that time you were in Dubai um, and things here kind of going downhill, like you say, and certainly from my own experience, I've witnessed that in in my own journalism career as well um opportunities sort of drying up and people really struggling for money um why do you think things were still working in Dubai when they weren't really working here anymore I mean the first thing to say is they weren't necessarily really working in Dubai Dubai in the time that I was there I moved after the 2008 crash and the first magazine that I worked on we had a team of of six by the time I left, we were producing two magazines a month with a team of two. So the the media industry over there wasn't necessarily what you would call buoyant. Um, but I think I think what I learned a lot from Dubai and what has um, probably very much influenced what I've done since I came home is there's very much an entrepreneurial spirit about Dubai. It's it's born from a pretty horrible place, I think. There's a, it's a very sink or swim place. There's no safety net. But it's a very, very young country. The country itself is only, I think now, gosh, I'm forgetting my history, maybe 43 years old. It's a very young nation. It's a hugely ambitious city. It has massive problems. But that attitude of kind of, sink or swim you you do things for yourself it does create this kind of buzz of let's see what's possible and I think when you're living in an environment where they say well we're going to build the tallest building we're going to build the biggest this and the biggest that and everything's a Guinness record world holder and all of that sort of jazz it has this kind of aura about it that that expands out to quote unquote normal people where you go well actually why can't I do that and you're you're around people every day from all over the world who come with a 
different learning experience, a different cultural experience, and that rubs off as well. So there's this sort of air of possibility about the place that I do miss. And I think the other aspect that is is very much endemic in the, the British media of kind of who you know and that who controls the news and, and who the people are who get ahead in the media and that sort of Oxford, Cambridge bubble that we we still see today in the British media. That's very much absent in a country like Dubai. It runs very much on merit and hard work. Um, that's a very simplistic take on it and it also very much benefits you to be British and to be white and there's horrible aspects to it. But for me, I found that if I could go in and do a good job somewhere, that was enough. It was recognised. There wasn't that sort of old school hat element of it. And as a working class woman in the media, that's definitely something that you do come up against in the UK. So I think I found that really beneficial and it definitely increased my confidence to be able to get to editor based purely on my work rather than on knowing somebody at the top of the company I guess yeah absolutely and there there are horrifying statistics that I can't remember the numbers just now um about how many uh, how many journalists in the UK are from um public schools or or just Oxford and Cambridge really um and it really does yeah it, it really does close the gates to to so many to so many other people like you say um but but now you run your own magazine <laughs> yes which sounds very grand um it doesn't feel very grand yet maybe one day but um yeah I think that I mean what you're saying about the the people who are in the media in Britain it's very true and I think that that's become far more true in in 2020 and I saw myself how how many women were really struggling to find work. I think the women are grossly underrepresented in staff positions and editorial positions in the UK. They're far more likely to be freelance. There's huge number of societal reasons for that and flexibility and all sorts of, of aspects that play into that. But that was the area of the media that really, really suffered at the start of COVID. And I saw it myself where when I started in journalism, you were regularly getting 50 pence a word for freelance work if you were established. And now I've been doing this job for 18 years and I was being offered 50 pounds for an 800 word feature for a major national newspaper. And I think we hold up in our head this idea that once you get to the point where you're writing for national newspapers, that you're a success. But the reality of freelance journalism is that there are thousands of people out there who are trying to bash out three features a day for 50, 60, 70 pounds a time just to be able to pay their bills. And the impact of social media on advertising and falling staff and there are all sorts of elements playing into it. But the the bigger picture at the end of it is that the media just becomes less representative of the people it purports to serve and the ramifications of that are huge. We all know that. There's been so much discussion this year about representation and, and diversity and, and how it feeds out to the wider public. But if you're a woman in your 
30s, 40s, 50s, you're not really represented to any wide degree in the media as it is just now. And that is primarily because the media is funded by advertising and advertisers don't want to talk to us. So my aim with it was really kind of one to, to fill my time while there were no freelance budgets up for grabs. Um, I figured if I was going to be writing for for buttons, I might as well do it for myself to grow something than to, to line someone else's pockets. And we've been working towards getting to the stage where we can afford to commission other women who have something to say based on what they have to say and not on who they know. And also in the meantime, trying to support small businesses and creative businesses who also struggle to get a foothold in the media when it's all led by advertising. You know, I think the businesses who've been suffering the most in lockdown are not going to have hundreds, thousands of pounds to, to blow on, on advertising to get their voices out there. So it was just about trying to democratize the field I guess in a very small way um, and and create something that could try and provide a little balance in that picture. Yeah I mean I completely recognize what you're saying certainly like as a um, you know as a journalist and as an editor I sort of feel like I've been on both sides of that that fence where you know you you've been in I've been in a position where you're offered, you know, paltry sums of money for really quite long articles, but then, you know, you are also put in that position of being given budgets where you have to do the same thing. And it really feels like, um, I certainly always felt like I couldn't find a way out of it. Um, I didn't know really how we were able to break that cycle. Um, and, and it is really hard, like you say, but, um, but that is something you're trying to do at the flock, isn't it? It is. That's absolutely what we're trying to do. And yeah, it's it's not easy. Um, we haven't monetized in any way yet because we we wanted to launch advertising free. And that means that we need to find a, a reader funded model. And the only way that you can make that work is to have readers. So we we launched as a free platform to build that readership first and to establish ourselves. And the next step is is to try and, and make that profitable. But so far, all of the money that we have brought in, we've just saved up. And for six months, I've been writing content kind of pretty much seven days a week um, with a few people who've, who've written for me for free because they have businesses to promote or because they're friends who I've worked with before. We've not asked anybody to write for us because I won't ask people to write for free and we finally this month kind of emptied that little pot of cash that we've been saving up to commission people and we said at the very outset we we want it to be a, a fairer rate than than is being offered elsewhere it's far from the rate that I would hope to be able to pay in the future but I think for me the the one way that I could kind of try and square that circle at the beginning was to say, well, I'm not going to ask anybody to write for us until I can pay them and pay them at least a sum where I can hold my head up and say, okay, that's not shameful. And the fact that we're paying double what I'm being offered by some national newspapers, I think is, is kind of 
a bit demented, <laughs> really, to be honest, um, when you look at, at readership figures. But um, it's it's a start. We're not going to be troubling Condé Nast anytime soon, but I figure you, you have to start somewhere. And at least if we can kind of start that conversation around how the products that we put together how the how we consume them, how we pay for them. I think it's a really important conversation to be having because while we ignore it, the media becomes increasingly ill representative of our society. And if if we've ever seen the how damaging that can be, it's this year. Yeah, I totally agree. I think I think it's really really hard work, um, and it, it it does take time, but it's super encouraging and really exciting to know that you're 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 trying to tackle this problem that that is such a big one for the industry and 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 really holds creatives back as well. I think. Um, how do you think COVID has affected everything? I mean, obviously publications have been in a really difficult position, and I think it's really exposed the the flaws of the advertising-led model. Um, and it's obviously had a huge impact on journalists' um, incomes as well, um, as, as, as you know from, from your own experience. But, um, but do you think that that kind of disruption has been needed for a long time as well to kind of provoke people into figuring stuff out? Or um, I guess, yeah, how do you think COVID will impact the industry in the long term? Um, I mean, I am hopeful that it has sparked a, a conversation um around not just covid but i think covid and and the the black lives matter movement and a lot of what has happened in 2020 has sparked a wider conversation about how representative our media is and we were already prior to this year seeing conversations with things like the bbc equal pay row and there is a feeling that there's more of a conversation being had around how the media works and whether it is representative of our society. And I think that can only be a good thing. I think my concern would be that we have had that conversation largely as a result of 2020. But while we're having that conversation, thousands of jobs are being lost in the background. And the jobs that are being lost are primarily those who were already facing bigger barriers into the industry. The people who get into this industry and um, have a lot of money behind them can afford to ride this out. The people who are freelancing or who are, you know, really grafting with lots of different bits and bobs of, of work, which is the case for a huge proportion of people who work in the media, have faced falling budgets this year they've faced stiffer competition I think is a, is a big part of it because the the big newspapers immediately pulled in paginations we've seen the Guardian cutting whole sections so there's there's huge areas where the money has been pulled from the system that that those aspects those bits of the newspaper would normally be heavily reliant on freelancers so that money left the system and at the same time, the newspapers were furloughing staff who then were putting themselves into the, the freelance pool. So the freelance pool initially at the start of COVID kind of grew exponentially as all these furloughed staff entered the mix. And then what has happened since is just a huge drop off from people who couldn't afford to 
sit around and wait for things to pick up. And we put out our first call for pitches um, for the flock two weeks ago. And within 24 hours of putting it out, I'd had more than, I think, 125 um, pitches. Within a couple of days, I'd had more than 250. And it was actually very hard to pick between a few because there were very similar stories coming up time and again. And we had people who'd been journalists for 10, 12 years wanting to write about how they'd gotten a job working in, in Tesco or in Sainsbury's over lockdown. Um, people who wanted to talk about how they've been excluded from all government support because they do shifts at a newspaper two days a week where they're paid PAYE and the rest of their freelance time, the invoice, and that was enough to put them out of the support system. Huge swathes of the BBC's staff have been unsupported through all of this because of the, the way that the BBC pays its staff and the fact that we hear about the staff pay rates and, and where they sit for men and women who are in the upper echelons, but the vast, vast majority of the BBC's staff are on short-term contracts that kind of put them in that gap where they didn't receive any support. So I think the when all of this shakes out after this, as much as the conversation has been had this year around the importance of, of diversity, I think what we'll be left with is is a a media pool that is less representative than it's it's probably ever been. And that's that's hugely worrying. Yeah, it really highlights the the precarity of, of freelance work, doesn't it? And I think the scale at which that happens. Um, I, I guess it's a little bit like um, the comment that Grace and Perry made a little while ago about um, you know jobs being cut at galleries, meaning that um, you know I can't quite remember what he said, but that all the kind of um, the chaff would sort of get you know people that would get rid of and it would be the exciting things that were left but that's not true at all like you say it's it's the senior people that will keep their jobs and the younger people who do have the exciting ideas um um are the ones that, that will lose them and then you find yourself stuck in the same kind of the staid industry as it was before with no one really innovating i think that's it and then i think the the other aspect where it, it I mean, you could talk about this all day, there are so many aspects to it, but it's not just the ability to to have a greater diversity of people working in the field, but it's, it's the way that that then translates through the copy that we read and the stories that get covered. And you look at something like the Grenfell Fire, back when I started in journalism, I was in local newspapers and we didn't even have an internet connection in the office. You had to go out onto the street and talk to people. And I'm only talking about 18 years ago. I'm not going back to the dark ages, but you, you know, you went and covered court cases. You went and walked down the street and talked to people. And I think the social media has been a wonderful thing for the media in some ways in terms of immediate access to information, but it's created these um, bubbles that we all exist in that prevent us from seeing what's going on outside those. And so you need to have people from within each of those societal groups within the media to be able to represent the stories that are relevant. 
And when you look at something like Grenfell, the, the people inside that tower had been shouting for months about the danger that they were in on their Facebook groups, where they were talking only to people who were already in the situation. And the reporters, you know, the BBC building is, is spitting distance from Grenfell, and yet nobody was picking up on that because nobody's got boots on the ground anymore. We're all reliant on these kind of circles of information within our, our own demographics. And so when the media doesn't represent a wider group of people, stories get dropped. And it's not just small stories, but that that whole picture that plays all the way down to what businesses are being supported and who's being represented in the magazines and in the features and in the the so-called softer stuff where if you pick up a copy of a women's magazine you've got that graveyard in the front that will have 40 50 adverts if you actually pour over the the fashion and the beauty spreads later in the magazine that are presented as editorial it's those same brands who are advertising who are in there so if you're a small business looking to make a foothold you can't get page space. You're not being represented at all because you don't have that advertising spend to break in in the first place. So it's it's representative across all sectors. It's not just news. It's it's the products that we're told to buy. It's the, the things that are recommended to us. And I think all of that is hugely important in terms of how we build back out of COVID and how we consume and how we shop and which businesses we support. And you can't support causes and businesses and creatives and people that you aren't aware of. So the the more insular the media becomes, the more everybody out with that bubble suffers, I think. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. Um, and it does paint quite a stark picture of where where things are at. But but then there are people like you doing super interesting things like the flock and trying to break that cycle. And, you know, you touched on editorial there. So this is probably a good a good time maybe for us to talk about that. Um, to, to tell us about the kind of content that you publish on the flock and um, the kinds of people that you've interviewed and, and, and what have been the sort of highlights for you so far of, of what you've published. I think for me, the the issue for women in my age group I think we always look at the women's media as being a very competitive busy place there are so many women's magazines actually that's not that true anymore there are fewer than there have ever been but those that do exist are by and large ignoring women over 30 and certainly women over 40 and so you find yourself and you'll be in the same boat where you fall into this kind of gap between good housekeeping and prima and parenting magazines and your kind of much younger titles that aren't really that interested in you and are not interviewing women your age and your stage and I am a parent but it's not all I am and I don't want to read a mummy magazine and I certainly don't want to spend my days baking cakes every single day as lovely as they are so you kind of find yourself in this weird gap um and for me it was sort of the pool really did a good job of trying to fill that gap I think the pool had fantastic content but again couldn't answer the the advertising and funding question and 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 fail so for me it was just trying to 
speak to women in, in my sort of stage of life about the things that we were actually talking about, um, the things that we talked about dropping our kids off at school or when we bumped into each other in the street or the things that we were WhatsApping each other about. And I think a lot of that community that we rely on um, for conversation was lost this year. And so what we've tried to do is just kind of create that that water cooler conversation, the things that we're talking about in our WhatsApp groups in the media space. And by not being reliant on advertising, we can support businesses that we want to support. So we, we've got four pillars, which are style, culture, people and power. And um, within that, we cover a huge range of subjects, but the the lens through which we focus everything is, is, is it kind? Is it progressive? Is it tending towards something better? So all of the businesses that we support are taking an ethical, sustainable approach to the industries that they're in. The women that we're interviewing are women who are trying to kind of have a a, an interesting progressive conversation for women we cover politics from the perspective of how it impacts on on normal people um so it's um it's diverse but i think that the women that we serve are are diverse and it's about recognizing that so we've had everyone from sam baker talking about her book the shift which is ostensibly a menopause memoir but actually goes a huge amount into her experiences of being a working class woman in the media and trying to build a digital business and accessing business funding and it's a really interesting read. We've had Jess Phillips MP talking about the domestic violence bill. I interviewed Christiana Figueres who was the architect of the Paris Climate Agreement. Um, so you know we're getting some really great big names in and we're kind of using them, I guess, to bring an audience to the smaller businesses that we then feature, whether that's graphic designers in Edinburgh, where it's um, people who are doing porcelain work or fashion work or businesses that aren't necessarily household names, but who we think have the potential to be or are doing really great and innovative things. And so it's being able to put them onto a platform that's got a wider audience without saying to them, you have to pay to be here. So that's what we've tried to do is create that mix that allows us to really highlight people that are trying to do things for for the greater good, I guess, if that doesn't sound too Miss World. <laughs> no, not at all. And, and certainly that variety is what I really enjoy about um, about reading The Flock as well. Um, and one of my favourite things that you do is your um, regular Instagram posts about um, seven new stories that you might have missed this week. Um, Instagram's been pretty pretty good to you um, for for audience numbers, hasn't it? Yeah, I mean, the algorithm is definitely not our friend at the moment. It feels a bit like shouting into a well, but we're on, I think we're on just over 7,500 followers so far, which is really not bad at all. And I, I remember when we started this kind of saying, if we could get to 5,000 by the end of the year, that would be amazing. So that's been pretty good. Um, 
it has pretty much just been me working on the business for six months, but my partner is a graphic designer. And so the poor guy finishes his full-time job every day and then makes me my Instagram graphics because he wants to throw my computer out the window when he sees me attempt it. So he's been creating the graphics and I think that's been really helpful because it allows us to have a sort of very consistent look and the the piece that you mentioned that we do every week the the seven stories that's actually one of the most popular things that that we've done and the thinking behind that was just that that so many of the people that I know who aren't in the media have been completely disengaging from the media over lockdown and over the course of this year because it has been so relentlessly depressing and anxiety inducing and I think that can be very difficult for people who ordinarily want to to stay informed and want to be aware of what's going on and if people aren't staying aware of the stories that could affect them then it's it's detrimental but People don't want to be pouring over doom and gloom all day long. So what we try to do is every Sunday summarise seven stories that we think affect the women who are reading our platform. So they're not always stories that are on the front page. We're not going into huge detail about Brexit negotiations. It's more things around childcare or the this week coming up I've just written I I write it through the week as I see things that will be relevant and then we edit down to the to the seven but certainly the the decision to cut the the minimum wage that's going to massively impact on on women who work part-time for example so stories like that we we put in there and then we counter that on a Tuesday by doing the same thing with good news stories where we talk about the things that are, are worth celebrating, whether it's this week it was that we're entering human stage trials for a malaria vaccine and obviously the, the start of the COVID vaccine. And there's been there have been some real benefits to come out of, of this year in terms of environmental innovations. So it's just trying to get that balance where we can help people to stay informed of the things that they need to know about, but they can read it in five minutes and get on with their day and not feel like they've just put themselves into a kind of bubble of doom for the rest of the day. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, I mean, it's been, in a, it's been a crazy year on, on several different fronts, um, uh, but um, you've had so many amazing things happen since you started the vlog. I mean, obviously, it's been really hard work and it will continue to be hard work. Um, but tell us about some of some of the highlights for you um, of, of the last six or seven months. <laughs> I've got a little collection of um, corks on the windowsill in the kitchen where we've written on the bottom of them what things were popped for. So kind of the the first time that we got over a thousand readers in a week and the first time we got over um, 8,000, I think it was, monthly views. We're now up at 12,000. It's um, But just kind of landmarks. And I think just seeing it grow and seeing, for me, that it's it's watching the repeat reader figure go up has been the most satisfying thing, you know, to know that currently I think it's 40% of people who are reading are are coming every week or multiple times a week. That's a nice thing to know. It knows it shows you that you're getting something right. And obviously that's a figure that starts from zero. So it's it's nice to watch that one go up. Um 
I was pretty amazed that we won the the startup category at this year's Creative Edinburgh Awards. I um, absolutely did not expect <laughs> that as anyone who saw my excuse for a speech would know. So that was very lovely. Um, tonight I've been invited to attend the, the UN Women Awards where I believe we've been longlisted for a special recognition award for our work in trying to um, improve equality and diversity. Um, so that's ridiculous. <laughs> um, and, you know, the fact that for both of those awards, we were nominated by other people, I think is, is the main thing for me. I, I'm not doing this because I want to be influential in my own right. I'm doing this because I believe in it and I want to see better from my industry and so when other people pick up on that and put you forward that's amazing and I think it's not something I would feel comfortable doing for myself so it's it's really nice when when you get recognition like that and we've also just um I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say all the details but I've I've just secured some funding for um for next year which will allow us to kind of know that we can we can be commissioning for six months while we, we try to find a profit model and we can be paying women every week to write for us. And that is a really fantastic thing um, to be able to do. And that's kind of my going out of 2020 on a high thing is knowing that I'll, I'll start 2021 with six months of budget in the bank to be able to commission people. That's a, an amazing feeling at the end of this year. Amazing. That's yeah. It's, it's so exciting to hear the journey that you've been on um, since since June. And obviously, we spoke. Um, I think probably just before uh, the flock had launched. Maybe it was May or something like that. And um, yeah, it's been it's just been so great to see everything everything that's happened. And I'm so excited for you for 2021 and and, and getting that funding. And um, yeah, really really keen to see the interesting things that happen next year. Me too. It's nerve-wracking. I think I I really underestimated the kind of roller coaster aspect of it all. Um, you know that starting a business will not be easy, but the fact that you can go kind of from super high to super low 20 times a day is not something I anticipated and probably not something I would recommend people adding into the mix of 2020 but um but it is it's really lovely to be going into 2021 with a little bit of security around it and I think when I started this I think the a big part of the reason that we actually did go for it and not just talk about it like I'd been doing for years was the idea that actually nothing this year is is too big to fail, nothing's too small to succeed. It was kind of the whole axis of <laughs> expectation was sort of turned on its head. And so I just sort of thought, well, it's a terrible time for the world generally, but it's probably never been a better time to take a risk because there's no expectation of success. So we didn't really start it with any great confidence that we would be going into 2020 with anything worth worth shouting about I guess so to know that we're going in with a bit of security that's a that's a really great feeling at the end of this year 
Awesome. Well, I'm really looking forward to seeing what happens next year. Um, and thank you so much for your time today, Jen. Um, is there anything else you want to tell people about the flock before we sign off? Um, I don't think so. Maybe other than the, the website address, which is... Um... That would be a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to find us we're at um www.flockmag.com and we're on instagram as join.the.flock i think i really hope i've got that right <laughs> awesome well thank you so much jen um and have a wonderful christmas and new year um and we'll look forward to talking to you again in 2021 you too thank you so much thanks for listening you can find out more about creative bridge at thisiscodebase.com slash creative dash bridge. Creative Bridge is part of Creative Informatics. Creative Informatics is funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council as part of the UK government's industrial strategy. It is part of the Edinburgh and South East Scotland City Region Deal Initiative and is also supported by the Scottish Funding Council. Find out more about the entire programme at creativeinformatics.org.